Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 332, and I had a conversation with Dr. Maurice Robkin. Maurice is a scientist, engineer, and considers himself, quote, nowhere near the physicist Feynman, Hawking, or Einstein were, unquote. Well, okay, sure, that's the highest of the high bars, right? But, you know, I think he's pretty damn smart myself. He's also the author of the Margaret series about a governess turned kick-ass pirate, and he's currently working on his seventh book. He also happens to be my dad. We chat about the edge of the universe, time, writing, love, and a whole lot more. And I'll tell you, during this conversation, I marveled in love of him. I mean, obviously he's my dad and I love him, but just he's so precious to me. And I know as a much older man, his time on this planet is limited. And I'm so thankful that I'm able to record talks with him and I'll cherish every word as long as I live, you know? So I'm so excited to share him with you all. Okay. For more episodes like this one, check out episode 100, the origin stories with both of my parents, episode 83 with Donnie Stedman, episode 106, When the Big Apple Bites Back with yours truly, and episode 127 with Dr. David Calkins. Looking for older episodes of Hey Human? Apple Podcasts now show all the episodes along with Blurby.com and of course HeyHumanPodcast.com websites. So if you find on your app that it only covers up to 300 episodes and you want to know what happened in that first year, definitely go to those other places and you will find every episode from the very beginning. In other news, check out HeyHumanPodcast.com for links that will let you deep dive to learn more about my guests and everything that they do and the show in general. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Also check out my new relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Are We There Yet? Podcast Show. Thanks for listening. Take care. Be love. Be kind to one another. Here we go. Dr. Maurice Robkin, also known as Martin March. That's your pen name that you write under. Welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Good to see you. Yes, and you too. <laughs> Usually we're doing this over, over Skype, so Zoom is a new way to go. And this time I'm going to grill you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Make sure it's grilled the same on both sides, so go ahead. Well, you have been on the show before. Uh, in the first year of my having Hey Human, you were a guest, and that was really fun to celebrate. I believe it was to celebrate my year one anniversary. As as a podcaster. Yes, yeah. as yeah. one of the things I do, yeah, as a podcaster. Yeah. I remember the occasion. I don't really remember what we said or talked about, but that's all right also. I wanted to get you on the show again and just have one of our usual talks. We talk about so many different kinds of things, many topics, generally science and space and writing. You grew up in New York and in California. In California. I was a little kid before I came to California, yes. Did you have a love of books back then and writing? Not, not, not writing. So love of books, yes. And uh, when I was older, you know, in junior high and so forth, I started reading science fiction books. 
got very interested in science fiction and science in general. But when I was in high school in Hollywood High in California, I took classes in creative, a class in creative writing and discovered that I enjoyed that and learned how to write a little bit there. I really didn't learn how to write the way an author does. I mean, I learned how to at least use the language a little bit. I learned grammar and syntax and, and all that stuff. And uh, when I grew up, I seemed to have a knack of writing good English and, good, you know, getting ideas across reasonably well. Didn't you say that at MIT that was encouraged? Was it Caltech? There, you said that one of your universities that you were, you no, were. What I said, I believe, is that one to get into Caltech, which is where I was as an undergraduate, you had to take four entrance exams, and in one of them, you had to write an essay for four hours, an essay on a couple of topics they gave you, for example. Uh, one of the topics they gave was, I forget the name of it, but I think it was about transportation or air, 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 fly, air, air or travel or whatever. And I wrote uh, good English, apparently, and so forth. And they did have a requirement that all undergraduates, all freshmen coming in, had to take an English class. And I was exempted from that, excused from that, because I showed in my essay that I already knew how to write English. And I guess I was lucky because they sent out professors to all the applicants all the potentially acceptable, acceptable applicants to see what they were like, to, to interview them face to face. This and is at Cal uh, Caltech they did this? Yeah. Wow. And it turned out that the professor that came to see me was the professor of English. Now, whether that was coincidental or because of the exams, I don't know. But uh, in any event, I was accepted to Caltech and uh, sort of went from there. To get into MIT, did you have to rely on any of those skills as well? Or was that more mundane engineering and science type stuff? Not that mundane, would, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, to get into MIT as a graduate student, the most the thing you needed was your academic undergraduate record and the other education you had and recommendations from appropriate people. And uh, I guess I uh, must have had enough of that because I was admitted. And uh, I went to MIT as a graduate student in nuclear engineering. Did you enjoy your college years? That's an interesting question. And as it turned out, uh, I wasn't really smart enough to do it without trying hard, without really struggling. You always say that, but you're well, one of the smartest I, people I, I know. 
Well, but you don't know the smart people I know. Good point. Uh, the point is and was there were some of those students who literally understood instantly what was being taught to them and never had a problem with any of the exams or any of the homework, didn't have to really work that hard. And the kind of person I always like to think of as that sort of person is what I can imagine uh, Richard Feynman was like when he was an undergraduate, you know, who are so smart that he was already doing the mathematics at the, at the graduate level when he was a freshman. As a kid that grew up in the realm of science fiction and fantasy and things like that, were you always in the back of your mind as a kid thinking, well, what is possible beyond what we know in, in science and technology? Do you think that that created a, a path for you or was it more happenstance? A path in what sense? A becoming one? That you would follow in the sciences. Uh, I don't know that I would say that it was something that directed me to that. It was something that that was consistent with my interest in science and the fact that I found science fiction very, very exciting to read. And even as a kid, I was involved. I was, uh, I had joined the Los Angeles Museum of Invertebrate Paleontology student program. I used to go on field trips looking for uh, fossils in the hills around Hollywood and uh, go to classes there and so forth. Um, I did as a uh, high school student, as a junior high school student, and uh, very well in science and, and math. And even in college, in undergraduate college, I did reasonably well which at a school like Caltech means I was probably doing better than most of the students as a rule in other places, but not necessarily because I'm sure in like in Berkeley and UCLA and so forth, there were students who were going to be these sorts of stars. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, a degree from Caltech may be counted more in the application to MIT, then perhaps uh, social equity would would uh, account for, would, would would be comfortable with. You grew up quite poor, so the yes. idea the idea that too you had to work that much harder because you needed a scholarship. Well, I never thought of it in those terms, but it was true that the fact that I got a scholarship in my first couple of years certainly made it easier because back then, of course, when uh, I matriculated at Caltech was in, in the fall of 1949, the annual cost at Caltech was $600. And that was a lot of money in those days for people like us. I mean, I don't know how many zeros you would have to tack on the end of that to represent what the present day tuition at a place like that is. 
But in any event, uh, you did manage to get scholarships and or fellowships, uh, both at Caltech and MIT, which made it possible to, to go to school there. Did your parents appreciate how hard you'd worked and the fact that you got a scholarship? Uh, that's not a topic I really can contribute much to. I don't know. Communication between me and my parents was, um, let's say, not very, not very smoothly flowing, uh, and so forth. So no, I, I grew up uh, pretty much as a a parented orphan, if that's the word. Um, mm. Not because. I didn't have uh, loving parents or parents who loved me, but we never talked about anything because they were immigrants. They really didn't understand what was happening, what I was going through. And in a sense, I think, for example, my father was a little either jealous or resented the fact that he was forced to leave college when the depression hit and he was never able to get his degree, he was studying to be an accountant, a CPA, a certified public accountant. And the depression hit and everything changed. People just could not afford that. Even going to a school like, like uh, City College of New York, you couldn't afford it. You couldn't afford to live. You couldn't afford to eat without any income. So, uh, and he had a family to support. Do you have recollections of the depression and being hungry or being poor? Did it did it occur to you? Never, never had any impression of being hungry. And as a small child, you don't have the the references to be thinking of yourself as poor. We lived in a one room apartment with four for four people. You know, there was just a bed sitting room with a Murphy bed a bed for me and a cot for my kid brother, my father and mother, and and, and uh, me and him. And as a child, even, even the, all the way through junior high and well into high school, I never thought of myself as poor. I just thought of myself as in a, in a new, my environment. I mean, I never, I never had anything to compare it to. Mm -hmm. Did you drag your little brother around with you when you were both of age that that would be appropriate when you would go on you know, rock finding missions or, you know, looking for fossils? Things no, like I used to, I, I took a couple of times to go fishing at, in Santa Monica um, and uh, to the movies from time to time when I was in college and he was still in high school. But I'm considerably older than my brother was, so I was almost a generation later, not quite, six and a half years, but you know how that goes. I do, as I'm the youngest of a much older yeah. sibling, too, in fact, yes. Um, and your little brother passed away a couple of years ago. He did. Uh, he passed away. Uh, he was 80 when he, when he passed, and when he was 80... 
I was 86 or 87. So that was, that was uh, four years, uh, five years ago. And he died of, uh, it's, it's a, a form of bone cancer, uh, which he thinks was brought on because when he was a kid and he was in high school, he used to do a lot of, of work around car engines and so forth and a lot of organic solvents. And back then, you know, in the fifties, uh, late in the sixties, uh, there wasn't all that fuss about that kind of of carcinogens and he suffered from this for a long time he got treatments and that held us sort of at bay for a long time they finally stopped working and uh, he finally succumbed to it after rochelle died a couple of years later yeah i and know that he missed her greatly i think uh Yes. We, he and I had a couple of interesting conversations in the hospital where he talked about seeing her again and, and looking forward to seeing her again, which, to be honest, surprised me because I never knew that he had that philosophy. And maybe that was a philosophy that came on later in life for him. We are sure when that is facing us, that kind of termination, we grasp onto whatever we can to make it easier for ourselves to not tear ourselves apart in contemplating what it means to be terminated. Do you think about death much? Uh, not much, no. Um, I don't feel like I'm close at the Me moment. Me neither. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, but that's not to say I don't recognize that my body is a good deal more aged than it used to be. You know, my spine has collapsed and so forth. And uh, my my sleeping is is not like it used to be and so forth. You have scoliosis that has yes. certainly progressed. Might, well, I've lost something like... Uh, uh, five inches since my full growth, five or six inches. And that's all from the fact that my spine is all bent over. You know. But I'm still able to get up to everything I need to do by myself. You know, I think my balance is affected and such like. And uh, I have the usual aches in places that I suppose I should, but otherwise everything's working. I discover I can't talk for very long without getting dizzy only because it takes a lot of oxygen to, to talk. Well, please tell me if you start getting dizzy and we will we'll come back. You know, we don't have yeah. to. You know, so there are various things that get, get wrong with a person and they all have different people have different issues. So, Have you contemplated what lies beyond? Well, I'm too much of a rationalist and too little of a religionist to really think there's anything beyond. Do you hope there is? That's sort of pointless. How come? To hope for something that's like wishful thinking is uh, sort of silly. I mean, it's a waste of effort. You don't think it brings comfort? No, I don't. 
I don't. You and I still have a pact that when you go, you're supposed to reach out to me if it is indeed possible. Well, it seems to me more likely you reach out to the dead from what I can gather. So I'm not sure which way that's going to go. And if you do reach out and get a response, it's not clear to me whether you're talking to yourself or actually talking to me. Because as far as I know, once the brain turns into soup, there is nothing left to communicate with. You never know. I don't know, obviously. Nor when I do know, will it do me any good now. Do you still look up to the sky and wonder, does the universe still hold your attention? What do you mean? Well, you and I have had so many conversations over the years about what is out there and the edges of things. And Oh, well, it's, yeah, speculate. I'm convinced that there is sentient life out there, but I'm also convinced it's so far away that interacting with them or even proving it, well, proving it is conceivable. Interacting with them, I think, is inconceivable. Uh, I think Einstein has said, you're really looking for something that's more magic than science. Now, he didn't say that in so many words, but he certainly applied it with his theories of relativity. So getting to those places would require so many human lifetimes that by the time any remnants of humanity in a ship would get to a place like that, there'd be no way of letting the folks back home know. Right. They'd all be long gone. Well, even trying to send them a radio message wouldn't be very useful because the probability of the location of a planet that had evolved sentient beings would be so far away that it would take hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe millions of years for a signal to get back from there to, to here. And unless we can find, um, for example, any kind of life in places like Europa or traces of leftover life on the moon or on Mars or wherever, Mars is a good bet, and Europa having a, an ocean under the ice is a good bet. Um, Again, the, the probability, even with the Drake equation, the probability of finding uh, sentient life, it's easy to, to use the Drake equation, but when you come right down to it without actually, like any other theory, you have to be able to disprove it, which means you have to either show that it's not possible or have a situation where every experiment you do does not produce a positive result or uh, if you're lucky finding and doing an experiment that seems to confirm the theory which doesn't necessarily prove it could you explain what the drake equation is yeah uh, this uh, drake said, let's consider if we can estimate what is the probability of finding sentient life outside of our own planet. And he said, well, let's first consider how many stars there are in the known universe. 
Then let's consider what's the probability for a star having planets? What kind of stars do this? And there's a certain class of stars that are likely to have planets. And so you multiply the first number by the second, you get an estimate of how many stars there are in the universe that are able in principle to have planets. Then you think how many of these planets would be of the sort to harbor life. When we look at our own solar system, we have eight planets now, and Pluto being demoted, and we have one planet that currently has life on it that has evolved to what we laughingly call sentience. Hmm. So, all right, if you put that number in, let's say one out of eight, one-eighth. So you multiply the first two numbers by one-eighth. And then you say, okay, what's the probability that a planet that can sustain life actually begins to have life? What are the conditions? Well, you got to have the right substrate, the same mixture soup of, of molecules that generates that. And he thinks about or he thought about that experiment that was done where a couple of guys put in a beaker, a soup of various chemicals, they put an arc discharge in there and fired it off like lightning and went back and analyzed the soup and discovered they had polymers of those amino acids that actually looked a lot like they were on their way to starting to evolve into more complicated polymers proteins and so forth and uh, until those polymers learned how to replicate themselves i.e become alive and so you look at what an estimate of probability is of that happening and you multiply the first set of numbers by that and on and on and on and you get through all the estimates of all the things that are necessary including the probability that you learn how to make weapons and wind up annihilating your entire civilization, your entire planet. No, that's not. And he came up with a number that said, given all that, there should be thousands, if not millions, of planets with sentient life on it. And of course, that blew everybody's mind. But the trouble is, it's only a hypothesis, a conjecture. So how do you go about turning it into a scientific theory? You set up experiments to disprove it, or to try to replicate it, or something like that. And so right now we shoot off rockets and we go to Mars, and we, we, we're, we're trying to go to Mars, and we're talking about going to Europa, and we're going back to the moon, and we're digging up the dirt and looking for traces of of organic life there and so forth. And we're looking at the ra radiation that comes from the stars for the kind of, of signals that the, an atmosphere that harbored life would have in it, things, you know, organic molecules of one sort or another. And, you know, we're, we're in the process of seeing if we can find anything. But so far, it's just a conjecture. So getting back to your question, do I think it's possible there are living things out there? Yeah, I think the Drake equation 
it's a pretty good hint that there probably are, though I think actually that there are, that remains to be seen. Do you think within the next hundred years we'll colonize Mars? What define colonize? That will, set, will set human beings down on Mars? Yes. That will have people actually living there? No. Because of the atmosphere? There isn't any. Uh, exactly. Well, that's what I mean. Because of the well, it's extremely thin. As far as we're concerned, it's basically a, a vacuum. I mean, the pressure of the atmosphere there is so small. It's also real and cold. <laughs> and, and very cold, yeah, except in the sun, which at least is no worse than, let's say, uh, uh, Mar uh, Alaska in the winter, you know. It's, uh, but um, there's ice on the planet, on the poles. It snows, right, it snows on the poles. Which means there's water, mm -hmm. and there's probably a lot of oxygen in the rocks as oxides. But Mars has no magnetic field. Oh, so there's nothing to protect. Solar protect. radiation, right. Mm -hmm. Which means that if there was life there, it was probably only allowed to develop to a certain point, but on the surface, uh, without a, an atmosphere, there's no protection against the radiation from the sun. And uh, so that's, you know, fortunately, the Earth has a magnetic field. If we lost the magnetic field, it would be real bad news. Because the solar wind would blow our atmosphere away. As it is, solar particles get shunted to the poles and they get burnt up or they lose their energy in the atmosphere. So we're, you know, this is one of those elements of the Drake equation. What's the probability? Well, we've been lucky. Uh, other places might have planets that could have supported life, but don't have a strong enough magnetic field to uh, protect themselves from the sun. The other thing in the solar system that's protected us and allowed us to develop is, uh, is Jupiter because it's our big wall against stuff coming in from outside the solar system. It's such a huge planet that its, its gravitational field acts as a big net to catch um, all those rocks that mm. keep coming in. It's Earth's bodyguard. Well, I think it's Earth's shield, you know, and uh, again, what's the probability of a planet living and has to be in the, in the Goldilocks zone? That's another term in the equation. What's the probability that a, a planet with all the other characteristics happens to be circulating around its primary in its Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot, not too cold? For a person that is so in touch with science and science fiction as well, why do you think it was that you were drawn to a historical type story in your writing instead of this other kind of thing that you grew up in loving? Well, it's very simple. It was a response to that challenge that that speaker put up. Well, once it got started, it was just too easy to keep going. 
the first book practically wrote itself. So did the second book. By the time I got to the sixth book, I had to be a little more uh, participatory. I think Margaret is a interesting, she's a badass character. I'd like to think that uh, I have a little bit of a model of her. <laughs> well, uh, it may be, I've never consciously thought about it in those terms, but I could see you, well, you certainly, as far as I can tell, don't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Don't tolerate? No, that's not the right word. I don't suffer fool. Suffer fools, thank you, yeah. Don't suffer fools gladly, yes. Yeah. And I can see you with a sword in your hand, you know, and I can, I know you've had some bad personal experiences with, with men. Love, um, sure. It's like just like Margaret has done. Uh, so yeah, I mean, who knows what the knowledge of people one one has interacted with, whether family or otherwise, contributes to giving characteristics to uh, to a character. And no spoilers, but Margaret did find the love of her life, so maybe th there's hope for me. Well, she found the love of her life, but her love of her life... No spoilers! No spoilers, yes. She found the love of her life and the tolerance of her life. It's a good way to put it. So maybe there's hope for me. There may well be. There may what well kind of person do you think that I have to end up with? Well, either a person you were head over heels in love with, that you were blind in love with, which you already have been, or a person that you are sufficiently comfortable with and respect well enough and can interact with easily enough without wondering what, what is this person thinking of, you know, how slow is this person or how boring, that you would be happy. But again, it's all part of the probability of life, you know, and the, there's always the issue of, well, I may meet this person, but how will I recognize him? If the person is very shy, how will I ever be able to interact with him both ways, you know, inter interact with him and get, uh, get a reading? I'm shy too, believe it or not. Yeah, well, I believe it, so am I. You can, know, you can tell that, though, can't you? Yes. But you and I, we have a special relationship. That's because we communicate on more than just the superficial level, which when you're talking to a stranger, you're always doing. Remember, when we're out among other people, we're always wearing our public mask, our public face. I suppose that can be true, but I, I'd like to think I've never met a stranger, but that's still, I'm still shy. It's a conundrum. Whereas you, I've been in social situations with you, and you are indeed shy. You would just assume not you'd be the observer and not really yeah. which isn't to say you're not lovely to chat with i have i have eavesdropped on you having conversations with folks but um but i think you are a little more to yourself more reserved uh, you're uh, uh, more of introverted i'm an extroverted introvert it's certainly you are very extroverted you're very social and you never you're like uh not Mark Twain, but uh, 
what was the early 20th century humorist? Oh, he made a lot of wise-ass jokes and stuff. A, 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 a satirist or a, a journalist? More of a sarcastist. <laughs> That's a new word. Uh, no, he was a great one-liner. And, um, he was on, he would come on into a lot of uh, stand-up comedy. Will Rogers? Will Rogers. And uh, you're like that. Boy, I... I would, I would argue that I am more like, I've never met a person that I'm not curious about. Whether yeah. I like them or not, maybe the jury is out. But yeah. certainly my curiosity has always been the thing that has, uh, that I have followed. Yeah, I'm afraid in my case, it only takes a few minutes of conversation to know that I, I'm not curious about this person at all. I can always find something. Oh, well, good for you. Let's get back to the universe. All right. I, I, one of my favorite things about you is that we can talk about so many subjects and that delights me. The other day we started a conversation about the edge of the universe. Yes. And for me to wrap my mind around the concept of the edge of something like the universe, it makes my brain cells start popping because I, it, I picture this just you're walking along suddenly you're at the end and then what what happens after that well a yes. bed bath and beyond what is yes, it yes 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 uh there's interesting there's some theories about the origin of the universe and where that energy came from nobody really knows but there have been lots of speculation and uh suppositions about what may have caused that, starting from who the hell knows it just happened to membranes, multiverse, not multiverse, but membranes that in this 11-dimensional construct of the universe, we can think of membranes floating around, which are three dimensions plus time, four-dimensional things in which each one is a universe into its own right, to whatever caused that big bang it began with this enormous point of incredible, unfathomable energy. And since it was so energetic, you can ask the question, you should ask the question, what did it appear in? Well, it appeared into the void, which means it is really a void. It isn't like what is outside what we call inner space, which is full of hydrogen atoms, it was a void. There was literally nothing there. And it expanded rapidly. But because Einstein pointed out, or since Einstein pointed out, that E equals mc squared, we know that a pile of energy is like a bunch of matter. Is their equivalent. Matter and energy are equivalent. So you got a place here with this intensity of energy that is warping this void. And you can ask if you like, well, what's it warping if there's nothing there? And you're getting into a second level of existence here. I don't know the answer. Uh, but anyway, all of a sudden that energy got converted to particles, which 
were fundamental. Now, yes, what does that mean? We don't know yet. We don't know where the limit of fundamental particles are. I mean, we've gone from atoms to nuclei and electrons to quarks and subquarks and, you know, muons and what have you, and on and on. Well, from the time that, uh, uh, I forget which Greek philosopher said that all of creation is made up of these individual particles uh, called atoms, which in Greek means indivisible. Uh, they thought that was the smallest possible thing. And of course, a couple of thousand years later, we began to discover that no, in fact, things get smaller and smaller and smaller. Turned out the first batch of particles were interacting with themselves and with any, you know, energy does um, create light, that you can generate light from energy, right? If you have excess energy in an atom, an electron is kicked up to a higher orbit in the atom, and it wants to get down to its more stable lower orbit, it decays and emits a photon of some sort, X-ray, gamma ray, whatever you want to call it, visible light, whatever. This great mass of stuff was in it was producing particles which were reacting, emitting energy as light, which was being absorbed right away, and the whole mess was dark in the sense that nothing escaped by way of light or particles outside of it. That was the known universe at that point, a few milli, 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 milli microseconds, up to maybe a few milliseconds, up to who knows, a few hundred years, thousand years, I don't remember. Until all these very uh, fundamental particles finally combined enough to produce bigger particles that didn't absorb every bit of light that was trying to go through them, and everything lit up, and light now could get out, okay? But what happens when you've got a, a balloon full of energy, hot air? It wants to expand. And if this balloon is infinitely expandable, it'll keep expanding. It'll expand till the pressure inside is equal to the pressure outside. But in the void, there's no pressure. So as long as anything inside, it keeps expanding, which was a big controversy until Hubble, the astronomer, the observational astronomer, looked up and saw something really weird. He knew that stars were made from hydrogen fusion, and hydrogen has very particular wavelengths. And you look at those stars, you say, gee, those lights that should be hydrogen, there's a bunch of lights, they're all in the rel relative to each other, the right separation. But every one of them is a lot redder, a lot less energetic than they should be. Why? Well, how could that be? Well, it's the train whistle effect. Train is coming at you, blowing its whistle, goes up in pitch. It gets to you, it's really high pitch, starts to go away, and the pitch goes down like a siren. So he says, well, the only thing this could be is that these things are moving away from us 
at some high speed, which you can calculate based on how much they are redshifted. And says, well, that's interesting because the stars that are closer to us have less redshift than the stars that are far away. Which means the ones that are far away are moving away from us faster than the ones that are closer. And the only way that can be is if they're out there on the edge of this bubble and the bubble's expanding, so any two points are moving apart and they're moving away. So that gets back to the question, what's the edge of the universe? Well, it's whatever is out there. So how come we don't know it? And what's containing it? And what what's containing there? it? It's con it, there's nothing containing it. It is just what happens when you release a big burst of energy that wants to expand. What's the potentiality of that expansion then turning back on itself? Good question. Well, we can get to that in a minute. What I was getting at here, we were talking about what's the end of the universe or the edge of the universe. Well, that depends. That depends on how far out you can see. Because the end of the universe, as far as we're concerned, is where the farthest stars are that we can see. And since the stars farther away are moving away farther and farther, they get dimmer and dimmer because the light's getting redder and redder. And when it passes down below the energy we can perceive or detect, they, as far as we're concerned, no longer exist. That doesn't mean they're not there. It doesn't mean that it's still expanding and that the edge of the universe, the end of this bubble, isn't still there and moving away from it. But as far operationally as we can see, and we know our end of the universe is always as far as we can see. As I was saying last time, the uh, um, new telescope, the James uh, Webb telescope, is going to give us a, a deeper look. So our universe will now have, be, have a bigger size. If we could make a telescope made of, say, a few thousand square miles of, say, reflective mylar in perfect conformation to look more light, more light, we'd be able to see a lot further. Our universe will all of a sudden get a lot bigger. If objects, can, objects in this mirror are closer than they appear. <laughs> if we can detect the radiation, redshifted so far that we can still detect it. If it gets redshifted down to sound level of energy, you know, if it gets down to stuff only, um, well, that, that nothing on Earth we have can, will be able to detect it. To us, it will be the end of the universe. Unless we build an instrument that can, in which case all of a sudden the universe will be bigger. Now, going back to the other question, that goes back to the debate of some 50 years ago or 100 years ago of whether the universe is contracting, static, or expanding. And that depends on what you understand to be the interaction between the expansion and gravitation. It was thought initially that it would expand and expand and expand until gravity slows it down to a stop, then it would start coalescing again. But uh, Hoyle and others thought, no, no, and Einstein even at some time thought it was a static universe, matter being created all the time and destroyed, and the universe was always 
static. And then Hubble came along and shot everything down and said, no, the universe is expanding and expanding, but nobody could really argue that. They still said, no, it's got to stop. Until uh, Einstein said, oops, I made a mistake in my equations. And this doesn't make sense unless I put this term in. And he put in a term which he called the cosmological constant. And just the constant that describes this continuing expansion. And that made it consistent with what Hubble observed. And it predicted that the universe would keep expanding and expanding and expanding until what's called heat death, until everything had given up so much energy it was no longer moving, no longer interacting. We all sort of go to a state of, of eternal stagnation, of eternal, uh, there'd be no energy left to do anything. So there was or is a theory which says that the Big Bang isn't unique to our existence, to our universe. It happened, it may have happened as a single huge explosion that was unfathomably bigger than our Big Bang. And it generated not our bubble, but an uncountable number of other bubbles, each one of which is its own universe. Each one of which is doing its own expansion thing. Each one with its own set of laws, and each one evolving its own way. That's, to which one can say, that's nice, but not very useful, because we're stuck here in ours, and there's no way to get to theirs. So, uh, it may be right, it may be wrong, but it's not science, because you know there's no way to prove it. No way to that's only, that theory, is, uh, which I tend toward, is one that is quite mind-boggling for me because I think if everything happened at once and yet created all these different universes that are operating in their own way, but still similar enough to this one that there might be just little tiny variations. There could easily be something with a minor variation. All that it would take might be that the energy requirement to make two amino acids link into a, a polymer, into a protein, is just high enough that lightning flashes and solar radiation wouldn't be enough to do it, in which case there'd be no life on the planet. Or there could be one in which every planet in the solar system was formed without a magnetic field, didn't have an iron core that was fluid, that was liquid. It cooled off too much, and the iron core froze. That's what happened to Mars. When it was first formed, it had an iron core. It rotated. It had a magnetic field, and it could have had life. But planet is smaller than Earth by a certain amount. And if you look at the surface-to-mass ratio, it's just a little too big, too much surface amount of mass, and it radiated all the heat of the core away, and the core solidified, didn't rotate anymore, and the dynamo disappeared, couldn't generate the magnetic field, in which case 
that now became susceptible to the solar wind, lost the atmosphere, life died, and, you know, that was the end of it. But isn't that, don't we base the idea that other, if there are other universes, that that they're, we assume they're operating under our particular rules, because those are the rules no, we understand no, no, and know? I mean, isn't no, it possible no. that there's some planet like Mars where there was an adapted species that is like, we can take this, we don't need... We don't care about solar winds. We're fine. Or maybe you know, they live you know, below you ground. Mean you, you mean you don't need an atmosphere? I mean, I'm saying, isn't it possible that somewhere out there is a universe in which the things that we understand to be true in our universe, there could be sentient life, fully functioning life elsewhere in another place that has beat what we would consider insurmountable odds? As a fiction writer who grew up with science fiction and remembering the stories, there have been stories, you know that life depends on carbon. Yes. In our, under, in our understanding, it does. Life, begin, life in our world depends on carbon. Carbon has four bonds free and binds with so many things, itself and a lot of other stuff. Silicon is in the same periodic... Uh, table of elements is carbon. Silicon also binds, but it takes a lot more energy to do it. It's a much higher energy process. That's okay, because there's a lot more energy uh, radiation coming in from the sun, from, from cosmic rays, and what have you. So it is conceivable. It is not beyond the rules of even science as we know it, that you could build a uh, biology based on silicon, which perhaps would have a kind of metabolism and life cycle that didn't depend on oxygen or any other kind of gas that could be, it wouldn't be a life, uh, a biology we would recognize or on a planet that we could live on. But it would be possible, conceptually at least, to postulate a biology that evolves into a civilization, that evolves into a scientific community, that evolves into whatever. So, yeah, sure, in, in the universe like that, or even in our own. It is conceivable, but it's only a theory, only a hypothesis, because there's no way, at least no way we have now, to disprove it, to, to negate it. Going back to what you said a minute ago about the void. Yeah. I think it's quite difficult for me to comprehend how something as magnificent as a universe coming from a void and as you said it is awfully odd to try and wrap your head around it but you said something while you were talking about that that was interesting to me if if we're living three we're three-dimensional beings that are we well we of time being part of our reality right but but also time is a construct as well so it's sort of this we're three-dimensional creatures living in a four-dimensional understanding 
Is that fair? We are three spatial dimensions aware of what to us seems like the passing of time, but that is only because of our perceptions and our gross structure. We are not human beings that perceive the quantum world and can perceive space-time because in order to really interact with space-time, you have to be of a mass large like, like a planet or the sun to warp space. And you have to be big enough mass to warp it significantly. And what you're warping has to be big enough to define how much mass you are and how you behave, what your mass behaves like. Einstein's general, the two halves of his equation, no, one side equals the other side, as it's described. One side uh, tells space how to behave, and the other side, one side mass, space tells mass how to behave, gravity tells <coughs> space how to behave, mass how to behave, and mass tells gravity how to behave, or space warping and so forth. So it's the same thing. It's, you're not, we're not, when we evolve, we're not big enough to sense that. All we are able to sense is the fact of entropy is really the only thing we can sense, i.e. we grow old and we decay. And a, a sense of forward motion. A sense of progression of yesterday to, to tomorrow. As we discover, as we grow up, we mature, we grow old. We grow up young and full of vinegar, you know, and we're full of energy, little kids skipping around and can't keep still. To the old folks who totter around and can hardly move. And then, you know, it's, it's the thing about our telomeres. On, the, on our genes, our genes have the instructions for life, right? There's a, there are the four nucleotides that various combinations have all the information for making things alive. And at the end of each of the genes, which hold these strings of information, is a chunk of meaningless genes, which are at the ends of the genes, which somehow protect the genes. And every time a cell divides, and it has to re replicate the genes, it loses a little bit of the, of the telomere. And as we get old and older and older, our telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter. And as a result, instead of getting good replication of our cells, we get faulty ones. And so that's why we deteriorate. We can't keep renewing ourselves properly. There are other things, of course, accidents and illness and one thing another that we can't repair. And so we die. So time is not this abstract thing, not this four-dimensional construct. That's useful only in trying to write something which describes what the reality is at the quantum level, so we understand where the, the macro level comes from. <clears throat> but for somebody living in uh, some nomadic tribe in the wilds of Africa, it's totally irrelevant. And they don't worry about it. They don't even 
know about. All they know, they have babies, they have adults, and they have old people. And whatever problems that provides, they deal with. If time is a mathematical construct, then wouldn't it stand a reason, again, hy hypothesis here, that we could just jot some mathematics down on a paper and time travel? <laughs> wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> it would be fun if fictional. Of course, but, it, but the idea that I'm, the joke I'm trying to make is that... I understand it. I understand it completely. And... It's equivalent to that old joke of Descartes. Remember Descartes says, Cogito ergo sum? I think that for I am. Someone says, Mr. Descartes, would you like a chocolate bar? And he says, I don't think, and vanished. <laughs> exactly. Do you think there is a potentiality for time travel at some point in our existence? What do you mean by time travel? Forward. I would say forward travel, I suppose, right? Isn't it been proven that backward travel doesn't can't happen? I don't think it's been proven. Because of the conundrum it creates. Any type of traveling backwards would create even this, the butterfly effect, even the smallest movement. Well, I, I can argue against that with the argument that says, if you did that and did something that was going to change history, that... The flow of time is so resilient and so implacable that events would occur to negate any effect you might have had, and it would just continue on with a slightly different explanation, perhaps, of this little jog, but otherwise you would be in exactly the same, the same reality as you did before you started. Interesting. That, in other words, you were able to create time travel only because of all the research, all the science that went on before you. And if you went back and shot the great-great-grandfather of the person who invented time travel, it would be invented by somebody else with the same name. The flow of reality can not be affected to the extent that you're proposing. Mm. Also... The information you may have gathered in the first instance when you went back wouldn't be there anymore because time travel hadn't been invented after the reality readjusted itself. But in, uh, in that readjustment, wouldn't that make you not the person going back? Because all no, it would have to... It doesn't matter that you're not the person going back. It only matters that you're a person going back. Huh. A lot to chew on. <laughs> well, I don't know. It just seems that fictional constructs of fictional universes are fine and they're fun to read. <clears throat> but for every fictional universe, the risk you run is trying to postulate something which immediately suggests all sorts of objections that can be raised that are just as reasonable as the, the universe you've created. And just as hard to prove or disprove, well, to disprove anyway. If there are other dimensions, can they leak? That's an interesting question. And that leads to the question of why the heck is 
the force of gravity so much weaker than the other forces like electromagnetic force. And that's what I think. The, the force of gravity is many, many orders of magnitude weaker. Well, back at the Big Bang, all the forces were unified. They were all the same force. They were just special cases, you know. And nobody has really come up with an explanation yet of why gravity is so much weaker than all the other forces. Gravity can be felt over the entire universe. Our, the, the, the Earth's gravity goes out forever. It just gets weaker and weaker, like going over the square of the distance. But even close up, it's weaker. You can drop a, a ball and it hits the ground, but it takes time. If you shine your light beam down, light beam hits from the same tower piece, you could shine your flashlight down, that light would hit the ground way before the ball got there. If you had a radio wave or, or a spark generator, the radio waves from the spark would hit the ground long before the thing you dropped got there. Force of gravity is very much weaker than these other forces. That's true, depending on where you are on the Earth, even. If you're yeah. on top of a mountain versus at sea level. Well, the force of gravity depends on the, the reciprocal of the square of the distance. And the distance is measured from the center of mass of the object to wherever you are. The center of mass of the Earth is somewhere in the neighborhood of, of the center of the Earth. Yeah. But this goes back to the question, actually, I was trying to get back to a leakage between the dimensions. There's been postulate, postulation hypotheses about, yeah, that's sort of one of the hypotheses of what happened to gravity. It's leaking from our three dimensions to somewhere in those fourth dimensions and by postulating certain geometric constructs of our universe that um, constrains the strong forces within these limits, but not the gravity. And most of the gravity is as strong as the other forces, but they leak out from our three-dimensional or four-dimensional universe or dimensions into these other ones so we don't detect it. it doesn't interact with what's down with us. But but not the, but those uh, but other things are not leaking for some inexplicable reason. If well, in that theory, well, there may be, but it doesn't affect the relative strength. I mean, the postulate I saw was that the other ones are constrained. There's sort of like an image of thinking of what happens to something which which varies as the inverse of the square of the distance. Imagine these other forces are constrained between two planes which bound our three uh, physical planes we know about. And the strong forces, electromagnetism and so forth, are constrained within that. But gravity passes through it out without reacting, which is as good an explanation as any. It just means that uh, it's expanding like a sphere if it's not constrained within these, these bounds, whereas the other ones, don't expand like the sphere because all their energy is constrained within by bouncing like a mirror, like two parallel mirrors. The light can't get out like it normally would do from a point source. It bounces back and forth. 
stays strong. Understanding that hypothesis, is there a potentiality of a person walking along in their happy dimensional life and passing through a rip into another? Well, unfortunately, all these constructs and concepts are really operational only in the micro world. Something as gross as a human being cannot go through the barriers made up of actual atoms and molecules and not fundamental particles. Fundamental particles are all buried within the particles, the, the real particles of molecules and atoms that make up are observable. But technically, aren't isn't everything that is made up of atoms, which is everything, that it's just those things are they're moving so quickly that they appear solid, but in fact they are not and therefore could pass through? The ones that appear solid like atoms only do that because the nucleus is so small and the electrons are so smeared out around them that mostly it's empty space. But that doesn't mean that the electrical field that surrounds the atom between the nucleus and the electrons isn't itself a big blob that keeps it from penetrating. But quantum mechanically, there is a probability, but it's so small compared to the probability of little particles doing things like that, that it is hundreds of times bigger than the age of the universe to happen. It's mm. so small a probability that it would take many multiples of the age of the universe. But you didn't to... say it's impossible. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm... So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> no, I'm saying that the chance is so minute that uh, you can say it's not zero, but it's indistinguishable from zero. Obviously, you've never seen Dumber and Dumber because that was a reference from that movie. You are currently writing your seventh book about Margaret the Pirate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, well, Margaret actually started out in the first book as governess to the young children of an earl in England. And through she had that job for four years. And because of the behavior of the Earl's eldest son by his first wife, she was forced to flee. And she was heading for the North American colonies and wound up in the Caribbean and was rescued by a privateer um, in a number of, because of incidents that happened. And uh, her life sort of evolved from that, a life that she had never expected, never anticipated. And uh, she uh, became a pirate, a privateer. Her husband, she, and she had a falling out because of a misunderstanding. She got her own ship with her own crew, and now she's captain, or became captain of a crew of women, plus two previous harem guards who were, uh, what's the word, gelded, I think is a reference, 
which is, you know, which is what happens to palace guards before they become palace guards, uh, harem guards, not palace guards, I see, but harem guards. And uh, meaning, it, meaning their testicles were removed. Well, yes, meaning that uh, mostly, for the most part, yes, sometimes it was more extreme than that. But in their case, yes. Through the course of the previous six books, she's had many adventures. She learned to be a master swordswoman, a master strategist, and she and her crew became extremely wealthy as a privateer uh, attacking and, and looting the ships of the one enemy she has. She and I have spent something like uh, six years of her life. What's that like to become so engrossed in, in a character? Or is she following you or are you following her? I'm following her. Yes. I, it was interesting. My first book, I was acting as a secretary, transcribing what she was displaying. It was like watching a movie. Uh, and this sort of progressed much the same way through the books. And by the sixth and seventh book, um, the interaction between the characters and the author became a little more complicated. Um, but it was pretty clear that when the author wanted to have them do something, it just wouldn't work. So unless what the author was trying to describe as happening actually was what the characters were willing to let happen, uh, it became very hard to write. Which I found very interesting because I've heard of this before. You fighting against your characters made no, it... Very not fighting against them. I don't think that's the right word. When I'm losing the connection or when the connection's getting too weak or too separated. So... Uh, uh, it isn't that there's any any conflict between the author and the characters. It's that uh, I think the author is trying too hard. How do you get back again then into the characters? Well, well if you're struggling because of something, you know, you have to step back and let yourself actually accept what's going on and try to be logical, but not demanding. Mm. My, my feeling is you can't force a story. It's got to, it's got to flow without feeling that you're just putting words on paper or on the screen, you know, mm -hmm. that you're, you're actually there looking and being with the, uh, the characters without actually being of the characters. What made you decide in your retirement to do this as a means to take up your time? Well, actually, I started writing a couple of mysteries. I wrote two mysteries. Um, I 
joined the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. And at one of their meetings, there was a speaker who was telling the audience to stop worrying, just write. And a lot of a lot of authors apparently really agonize over writing. And he just says, stop doing that. Just sit down and write. And he said, I'm going to put a couple of words on the whiteboard. I'll give you 10 minutes, you know, write something. So he wrote down pirate and woman. And in 10 minutes, I wrote a couple of, this is handwritten, no, handwritten pages of a scene. And it was, the, it turned out to be an idea for a story. It was a scene that would belong right in the middle of the, of the six, seven books somewhere. But uh, and that was the beginning. So I said, okay, that's interesting. How would I begin something like that? And when I got home, I wrote the introduction. What do you call that? Uh, prologue? Prologue. Yeah. At my age, words seem to drift off into the never-never. Um, a prologue. Uh, would it be a spoiler to say what the prologue had in it? I don't think so. Anyway, she's in court being charged with murder, theft, and piracy. She's on trial for her life, and she's in front of a hanging judge without any jury. And this is the, the last, <clears throat> in the last couple of decades of the 17th century. And she is testifying in her own behalf about what brought her to this point, trying to explain how her life came to this. Starting out with her standing in front of the Earl's uh, home, the Earl's castle, well, it's not a castle, but it's a stately home by then, you know, and how she came to be in this court. And we went through the first book, and at the end there's a, uh, a uh, afterlog, you know, whatever you call that. Epi epilogue. Epilogue, yes. And, uh, and a uh, sample of the next prologue for the next book, and the first chapter or so, and on and on. And it never seemed to really finish her story. And she had to keep the judge sufficiently interested in allowing her to keep continuing because this typical trial lasted maybe no more than half an hour before the defendant was convicted and sent off to be hung. Hanged. People are hanged, not hung. Beef is hung, people are hanged, yes. Um, and it went from there. I don't want to take up all your day and tire you out. This has been such a great conversation and I, I love you so much. And this is just a snapshot of the millions of conversations you and I have had over a lifetime together. And I'm so lucky to have you as a papa. I am so lucky. And I, I could not even begin to tell you how much you mean to me. 
Will you please let people know how they might find your books and such so that they can go seek out your wonderful brain? Amazon. Margaret, Outrageous Fortune, which is the very first book, is available on Amazon, as are the next six books, or I guess five more. There's six in total because you're writing seven. And they all can be found on Amazon under Martin March. The good news is I'm going to put all the links to all the books on Hey Human Podcast links page. So it will be very easy for people to go. That's and fine. Them. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Thank you so much for your time, Dad. You're welcome. I really enjoy these talks. And always keep in mind that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Okay. I love you. Okay. Thank you. You too, sweetie. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.